invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. Last week we looked, not last week, last time, we looked at verses 12 through 17, but we really didn't get into 17 much at all, and it's a really uh, important verse. And so we'll be looking specifically this morning at 17 and 18, but we'll be reading Romans 8 verses 12 then through 18. Romans chapter 8, Paul is just recounting the wonder of the gospel, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that the Spirit has been poured out so that we no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, um, and that we, uh, we've received the spirit of adoption. We are actually, in truth, the children of the living God. Uh, angels can't claim that, but every true Christian can. And so... Um, we're going to read about that in, in uh, our text here, but we'll be looking, as I said, specifically at verses 17 through 18. Let's give our attention to God's Word. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that every word of Scripture is not only, has not only been spoken by you, but it is, it is you speaking still today. And so give us ears to hear. And to receive this truth as it comes, Lord, from your, from your word. And we'll give you the praise as you confirm and strengthen and establish us in our faith by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. About 30 years ago, the pollster George Barna uh, sent out a survey uh, nationwide, uh, really looking into what do Americans actually really functionally believe? And uh, he asked questions uh, about, you know, sin and hell and... and um, and death, and just the big religious questions. But one of the questions he asked was this, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? And the answer came back fairly strong that the Americans are convinced that the purpose of life is personal satisfaction and fulfillment. Personal satisfaction and fulfillment. And that was not only um, the majority of those who uh, did not go to church or, or, or um, you know, nominal Christians, uh, those who said that they were professing evangelical Christians, uh, the majority of them answered in the same way. It's because we live in a, in a culture that is convinced of these things. That, in fact, when I said that, that maybe didn't strike you as a strange response. Maybe it struck you as, as sort of, yeah, of course, uh, that's, that sounds right. That's the purpose of life. Well, there's several problems, of course, with that response, First, just on the face of it, just think about how embarrassingly small and, and self-referential it is. 
Uh, do we really want to say that the, the reason we exist, the deepest purpose of our existence here on planet Earth, the reason we're here, the great raison d'etre, the reason we exist is to satisfy our own small little desires. That, that's really what it's all about. And then after a few years of pursuing that, usually futilely, then we die, and that's it. That, that's what the whole thing was all about. You making you as happy as you could be. Well, if that's it, no wonder people are so disillusioned and depressed. There's no God in that scenario, in that purpose. There's no glory in that scenario. No honor. Nothing rich and deep and found, uh, just foundationally true and magnificent. It's just you trying to put a smile on your face. Uh, Tim Keller has pointed out, not only is this a thoroughly... Um, erroneous worldview. It's, it's a profoundly inadequate worldview, particularly when it comes to suffering. And he says it's a very modern way of thinking. Uh, ancient cultures thought differently, that the reason for life was to bring uh, honor to the family name, for instance, uh, or to, to further the cause of the tribe, uh, that, that you were part of something larger than you, and that your purpose of life was to contribute to that larger cause. And, and in that context, there was a category for suffering. Suffering is what you expected to experience as you engaged in the cause. And that this profoundly small self-referential way of thinking about my purpose is, Keller says, probably the most... Um, or probably the worst possible worldview for dealing with suffering. It's the most inadequate because, you see, it, it doesn't have any room for suffering. There's no value in suffering. If the purpose of your life is personal satisfaction and fulfillment, well, unchosen suffering, weakness, loss, there's no value to it. There's no purpose in it. In fact, it's antithetical to the reason you exist. Suffering equals failing. <coughs> suffering equals failing. And so it's a it's a it's a worldview that is going to come to um, it's going to come to a severe test when actual suffering happens in a deep, profound way for those who are convinced that that's the purpose of life. And the question I want to ask is, what if, what if we were made for something vastly more, something so much more deep and profound, something that had glory to it and, and honor in it? What if, what if we were actually made to dwell in the presence of God, to be, to be robed with his, the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ and to reign with Jesus forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be preferable just, just to living just to make you, you know, put a little smile on your face because you got, you got something your, your flesh desired today? I mean, I mean you, just, you just think of the, the two and they're not the same. They're not in the same, they're not in the same category. See, our, because our text this morning promises this overwhelming, um, astonishing thing to those who belong to Jesus. It tells us that we are heirs of God and heirs with Jesus Christ. It tells us that by grace through faith, it's a free gift to us, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and by the immutable promise of God in the gospel, 
The fields of heaven are our inheritance. It's our true home. The gleaming ramparts and towers of the celestial city are just over the horizon. And the purpose of our life here will be realized when we are welcomed there. That's what this is for. We live for eternal things. There are three great truths here in these two verses, and we'll look at them in order. The stunning truth, first of all, the stunning truth that every true Christian is an heir of all the riches of Christ. Second, the sobering truth that every true Christian has been called to suffer with Christ. And then third, the sustaining truth that the present suffering will give way one day to eternal glory. And so we'll look at the inheritance, and then we'll look at the reality of suffering, and then the glory. The inheritance. I touched on it last time, so I won't take a, a lot of time, but we, we have to put some... Um, we, it's a vague idea. It's a vague word right now, and I want to put some contours to it, some, some specificity to it, so that when you think inheritance, you've got something very clear in your mind, in your heart of, of, of what that means. Uh, when we think about inheritance today, we just think about what... Um, kids of rich parents are going to get when their parents die, right? You get the house and the boat and the cottage, whatever. You get, you get the stuff and the money that your parents had when they, when they die, you get, that's your inheritance. And the stuff is, um, well, it can be lots of different things. It's just whatever belonged to mom and dad. Well, when the, when the Bible talks about inheritance, it's talking about something very, very specific, and every Israelite would have been able to tell you what the inheritance was. Um, the inheritance in the Bible is very tightly tied to the Holy Land. So the Old Testament, when David, for instance, speaks about uh, the man who fears the Lord, he says in Psalm 25, 13, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Psalm 37, 9, evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. If you just do a search in your Bible, inherit the land, you'll find those two, those two ideas go just like this, something very specific. Now, the Holy Land, of course, is that's what God had promised to Israel to give to them, promised that to Abraham. This is going to belong to your descendants. But the Holy Land was not just a material possession. It wasn't just real estate somewhere there in the Middle East. It's not just a material thing. It's a spiritual reality. You see, because the Holy Land is, uh, well, it's a, it's a picture of Eden, that special, beautiful, holy place where God dwelt with man. And the glory of God was known and experienced, and God poured out His blessing on Adam and Eve. That's the land. And so the, the holy land, what God is inviting Israel into and giving to them, is not just real estate, but His presence. That's why the tabernacle matters and the temple matters. The temple is what makes the holy land a true inheritance, where God is the reward. Well, Israel, of course, constantly forfeited that inheritance through their idolatry. And so, just like Adam and Eve, they were expelled from the garden. They were removed. 
cast out of God's presence. But that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, The prophets pointed to a coming day and a coming king, David's son, the Messiah, who when he came, he would bring Israel into an eternal holy land by his own power. So you have a prophecy, for instance, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, verse 21. Isaiah 60, 21, Isaiah is speaking to Israel as they're uh, in the midst of judgment, and yet it's not going to be the end of the story. Look at what it says, Isaiah 60, 21. Your people, the Messiah's people, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. And just in that verse, you see three things that tell us that the the inheritance, the land, can't just be the real estate in the Middle East. It's something future, something much more magnificent. Notice this idea of righteousness. Uh, Your people shall all be righteous. That was never true in Old Testament Israel. When David talks about the wicked in the Psalms, the wicked are Israelites. People who say they belong to the covenant, but in truth, just live for the devil and for themselves. Those are the wicked. It was never true of Old Testament Israel that everyone was righteous, but it is true of the new heaven and the new earth, which Peter calls the home of righteousness, 2 Peter 3.13. There, every citizen will be thoroughly righteous, not only by the imputed righteousness of Jesus, but in in truth. When we are glorified and and there's no more sin, no more indwelling sin, no no more weakness. And so the prophets can say, they shall neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And so the inheritance is that time and place when there is no more sin. All the people are righteous. That's the inheritance. So it's it's a righteous place. Secondly, it's an endless place. The prophet says, they shall possess the land forever. Unlike the Israelites of old who were not able to stay in the land because of their sin, these citizens of this new kingdom, this land... Well, well they'll, they'll endure forever. They, they will never be removed. Their, their citizenship is eternal and immutable. Those who enter will never leave, never be cast out, ever, for all eternity. And the reason that is the case, thirdly we see, that it's because God himself has built this, this city, this country, God says it is um, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. The the land that that Isaiah is talking about there in chapter 60, it's the same that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, some of the most beautiful passages and verses in in Scripture where it talks about how Abraham and and the the patriarchs, they, they, they went about in tents. Because they were looking for something more. They were looking for their 
homeland. They were looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. They weren't just looking for real estate in Israel, in Palestine somewhere, right? What they're looking for is that city that will endure forever. The city whose builder and maker is God. And, and, and Hebrews says, it, it, it says those who are looking for that eternal city, those who have a sense that that's their homeland, that's what they're looking for, God is not ashamed to be called your God, for he has prepared for them a city. I remember when uh, dad died, and it was so precious, I just uh, came into the room, and, and um, it was clear it was, this was his last day here, and those words are so beautiful when you're at a, a deathbed, and when everything in this world is, is, is being lost, and it's absolutely okay, because this was not what it was about in the beginning, and I just quoted to him. Dad, you're going to a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And, and Dad, God is not ashamed to be called your God for he's prepared for you a city. And, and, and just reading that, and I turned around and, and the, um, the lady from hospice was sitting on the couch, just tears streaming down her face. Because it's a truth that matters to all of us. Right? Every, every Christian senses that's what I'm made for. That's, this isn't what it's about. It's, it's got to be more than this. There's a, there's a hunger in our hearts for that city that God himself has built. That's what the saints of old were seeking for. That's, the, that's the, uh, what all true believers today are yearning for. We desire a better country, a heavenly one, Hebrews eleven sixteen. That's our inheritance. So when Paul talks about our inheritance, that's what he's talking about. That... We are certain possessors in Jesus Christ of that better country, that fair land, by the power of, of Christ's own atoning death and his victorious resurrection. We have been made heirs of that eternal city where there's no more sin and no more death, no more crying, no more pain. In that land, God himself will dwell with, with them, with his people. God will dwell with us, and God will wipe away every tear from our eye. That's what it means to be an heir with Christ. And in that city, in that place, we will be robed with his glory and crowned with his honor as we're given to Christ as his bride and reign with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth. That's the inheritance. Nothing less than that. That is what God has prepared for us. That is what the Son has purchased for us. That is what the Holy Spirit is pursuing as he works within us. But the road to that city is a road of suffering. That's what Paul wants us to know. The suffering. 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering is somehow inextricably bound up with the inheritance now, we need to be clear that this is not a conditional clause where uh, Paul is telling us, right, you, you have to gain this through pain. We're not saved by our suffering. We're, we're saved by Jesus' suffering, right? His the righteousness that brings the reward. So, 
So we don't, we don't look to our suffering in a redemptive sense. If I hurt enough, then, you know, that's my hope. No, our hope is in Jesus' blood and his righteousness. However, it is absolutely true that those who belong to Jesus will suffer with Christ. The road of discipleship actually is a road of tears. We're going to grieve if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is at work within you. You are going to grieve the reality of your own sin. You're going to grieve the reality of the sin of loved ones. It's going to break your heart when you see people who, who know the truth turn away from the truth or who see the people that you love get trapped by the devil and the flesh and the world and, and you're, going to, you're going to weep over it. You're going to suffer as a Christian the reproach of the world. You're, you're going to suffer the betrayal of friends. You're going to suffer crippling illnesses and devastating losses. There will be crises and calamities. And, and some of you are, are experiencing these things right now today. This is the dark, dark cloud maybe that, that's over your life this morning. And, and Paul wants us to know that this is not a... It's not a bug in the operating system called discipleship. It's a feature. It's been designed this way. It's not a surprise. It's a guarantee. Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble. And he doesn't apologize. He doesn't say, I'm so sorry. I mean, I, I, I got the heaven thing worked out, but it, it's just going to be miserable and there's nothing I can do about it. But either, better than that, it means that, that if you're suffering, you're not doing it wrong. You see, if, if we've adopted the American conviction that the purpose of life is personal satisfaction and fulfillment, well, if you're suffering, you've obviously done something wrong. But that's not true. Your suffering is a suffering with Christ. Let me, let me just unpack that a little bit. What does it mean to suffer with Christ? Well, that, there's two ways to take it, and they both are true. One, we suffer with Christ when we suffer the, the ordinary, ordained trials of life in faith. Okay, that's how Jesus lived in this world. He suffered the realities of this broken, fallen, sinful world, and, and he grieved it. He, he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He, he's, he's astonished and, uh, by the unbelief of the disciples Jesus experiences the, the trials of life, but he does it trusting in his Father. He does all of it submitting to the Father's will. Even, even when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, gripping the ground, sweating blood, Father, if it be possible, let it pass from me, the, this unbelievable suffering that, that he's facing as he looks to the cross and to suffering the judgment for our sin. Even there, Jesus walks by faith and submits, yet not my will, but your will be done. That, that, that Jesus was able to say and willing to say in that moment, I don't exist from, in a sense for me, I exist for my Father and for his will, for accomplishing it. And friends, that's what Jesus calls us to do. To suffer with Christ in trials is, is to suffer with faith to suffer trusting in our Heavenly Father, uh, submitting to Him in, in faith. We don't understand it, and, and we wish it weren't the case, but, but we trust. 
And, and that's, a, that's a wonderful encouragement. I was, as we go through the trials of life, you know, lots of people get cancer, don't they? All over the world. And people go through depressions and, and people lose loved ones. People suffer tragedies all, all over the world. But the, 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 the unique thing and the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that, is that you, get to, you get to do all of these things that, that are part of life in this broken world with Jesus, with Christ. It means that you're suffering. There's something, there's, there's something sanctified about it, something holy about it. It's, it's precious in God's sight. Suffering doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Suffering means that you're in the game, that God is... is is at work as you, as you believe, as you hold to your faith, they're in the midst of, of what, what hurts so much. And right there, you see, in, in that context of trial, there you have an opportunity to honor Jesus Christ and to, and to stand for Christ in such a beautiful way as you simply believe. As you just believe. God knows best, not me. God loves me, and I know that because he's told me so. And even though this is so hard and, and it hurts so much, I'm not going to live by what I think and what I feel. I'm going to live by what my Bible tells me. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. God said it, and I believe it. And we live by faith. And see, friends, as you do that, you're suffering with Christ and, and, and for Christ. As you, as you trust in the Father and submit to his will and believe every promise that's yours, you take up that cross then of grief or pain, trusting, willing to submit, willing to believe, and know that in that place, you're doing something so beautiful and so precious in the sight of God something that is so valued in the halls of heaven. Look at this saint. Look at this child of God. Look at the glory, the beauty, the preciousness of their faith as they trust in Jesus and give thanks to God even, even in the midst of great trial. So that's one way that, that we suffer with Christ is we just do life and, and suffer the reality of this life in, in faith. But secondly, to suffer with Christ is, is obviously to suffer for the name of Christ in a specific way. It's to suffer because you love Jesus in the midst of a world that hates Jesus. To suffer because you're happy to be known as a Christian. You're unashamed of speaking his name. You are willing to own his cause and you, and you, and you give your time and your prayer and your money and your effort to further the cause of Jesus Christ. And you're willing to have painful conversations with friends and family who are lost because of Jesus. You're, you're willing to suffer the loss of material things and maybe employment because uh, you're not going to disobey Jesus. We have, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who know ex that exact thing. And they've lost material possessions and, and, and they've lost uh, their jobs or their business because they had the audacity to be named with Jesus. And friends, I think that's a reality that, that we very well might face. Are we ready to do that? Let goods and kindred go? This mortal life also? Because that's the call of a disciple. That's, that's, that's what Jesus unashamedly calls us to. To suffer with Christ as we, as we are engaged in the mission cause of Christ, living for Him and for His cause. 
Paul says to, in 2 Timothy, his last letter that he writes to this young man, says, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's a job description. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's not just a job description for pastors, but for every disciple. It's part of the calling. To endure the trials in faith, to be willing to take his name and bear his reproach as we engage in his cause and we'll, and we'll suffer for it. Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The New Testament writers don't shrink back from this. Paul, you know, I love in Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 14, Paul is visiting the churches that he's planted and we're told that he went around encouraging them and strengthening them and this is what he said. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, because they're suffering and, they're, and they might easily be thinking, what did we do wrong? And Paul says, you're not doing anything wrong. This, this is the road. Be strong in the Lord. Uh, Peter says the same, beloved in chapter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial as, as though something strange is happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And, and that's the logic of the New Testament. Be glad in the suffering as you know that you're going to be unbelievably glad when the glory is revealed. And that's what we find here in Romans 8. As Paul goes on, that we, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, um, if you could think of, of the most wonderful thing that could be said about you or promised to you, it, 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 this is it. That glory is going to be revealed to you, the glory of Jesus Christ revealed to you and in you and through you. Those who suffer with Christ will be glorified with Christ. Can you imagine the glory that belongs to Jesus? Not only because of his being, second person of the Trinity, but, but because of his obedient life and, and, and death and resurrection. The glory that belongs to Jesus. When you, when you look in the book of Revelation, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain because with your blood you purchased the souls of men for God. You've ransomed a people for God. The, the, the incredible glory that belongs to Jesus, and, and Jesus tells us through his apostle, that glory is shared with us. Those who suffer the trials and losses of, of this broken world with humble faith in Jesus, you will be glorified with Jesus. Inexplicable glory and honor given to you. Those who live their life and even lose their life for Christ will reign with Christ in the world to come. And, and the New Testament writers, are just, they just keep pointing us. After you've suffered a little while, Jesus is going to be revealed. And so, and so Paul takes these two realities, the reality of the suffering of this present time, which, which is real and heartbreaking and hard, and, th and then he compares it with the glory that will be revealed to us. And here we have all, right, we face the moral and physical frailty of our not yet perfected selves and, and the, the moral and physical frailty of those we love. 
and the opposition of the world and the flesh and the devil. And then he says, but over here, we have something that's incomparable. The glory that will be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, no one in heaven is going to pull you aside and say, you know, this is really nice, but I don't, I'm just not sure it was worth it. I don't get it. I, I mean, it's, I, don't get me wrong, I love it here, but did you, do you know what happened to me down there? What I had to go through? No one. Instead, the complete opposite is going to be true. When we experience the reality of the glory in Christ, we're going to be stunned at the incomparable value of this in, in, in light of that. That was nothing compared to this. It, it's like... If you just imagine buying a, a $30 million estate overlooking you know, the Pacific Ocean, someplace where it's warm, and it's the most incredibly beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life, and you get it for, a, for 10 cents, right? You give them the dime, they give you the keys. And you're thinking, this doesn't compare. They don't match. The cost and the reward don't mesh. Well, that's exactly the way it is with us. We're going to receive something that's incomparable. You, you, you just you, you will be absolutely stunned at the weight of the glory that we'll receive in Jesus. Friends, is there a cost to following Jesus? Yes, there absolutely is. And everyone who says otherwise is, is lying. There is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus says, unless the seed falls to the ground and, the, and dies, it can't bear fruit. And so, and so we experience a life of dying, dying to self and, and dying to sin, um, dying to, to things that, that even are good, to a dream, to a desire. And yet, and yet we submit to God. And so we live this life of dying, but Jesus says in that process, there is a life of bearing fruit for the glory of God, and it's eternal. Is there a cost? Yes, there is. But friends, the Jesus who's called you to suffer with him is the Jesus who's promised. He'll be with us every step of the way, and it's the Jesus who has promised that we will also reign with him. The suffering now is going to give way to inestimable glory and honor. And those aren't just words. That, that, those are realities that Christ has purchased for us by his own blood, and he promises it to everyone who believes in him. Not everyone is going to experience this. Those who do not know Christ, those who've never come to faith in Him, are going to experience eternity to be the most unimaginable horror. It's given to those who by grace, through faith, have come to Christ. And so my, my plea is, have you? Because your eternity is just, just ahead of you. It's just right here. You're almost there. We're going to tonight be looking at Psalm 39. And, and help me to know how fleeting my life is. Are you ready? And if you're not ready, friend, uh, I just plead with you 
Today you can, you can come to Jesus just that way and, and, and confess your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved and this is what it means to be saved. It means that you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and you are heir of the glory of Jesus Christ. And your life finally has a purpose. You've discovered what you were made for. You were made to know God. You were made to enjoy God and to dwell robed in the glory and the honor of God forever. Friend, let that truth, let that purpose direct your steps, direct your life. We live as citizens of another kingdom. We live for the the city that's celestial, for the fields that are eternal, that God has prepared and given to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I I thank you, Lord, that you have prepared unimaginable things for us, indescribable things for us in Christ Jesus. And you call us now to, to live by faith in all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus has promised. And, and Father, we want to confess right now how worldly we are and have been. Our minds and hearts have been filled with things that are passing away and, and we so seldom reflect upon the, the glory of our inheritance in Christ. And so Father, I pray that you'd give us a heavenly mindedness by your Holy Spirit that we would see the, the, the rich, full, beautiful truth of the gospel, that we have not been saved for this life. Uh, we've been saved, Lord, for e- eternal life. Uh, we are not looking for our home here, but we have a homeland that God himself has prepared for us. Father, I pray that you encourage those who are suffering today, that, th- that you've not abandoned them, you're not punishing them, you're preparing them. And that, and that this is the road of, of faithful discipleship as we're willing to suffer and to grieve as we follow Jesus, as we, as we hunger for others to know him, as we, as we pray for their conversion. Father, I just pray that your word this morning would go deep to our heart and, and transform our life to the glory of God, to the praise of Jesus. Until we see him face to face, amen. Let's respond together. Sing that hymn you know so well. By the sea of crystal, saints in glory stand. Let's, let's sing.
the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace till Christ come again. Amen.